Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. But without further ado, uh, we're going to open the Word of God this morning. Um, Simon Danucci, one of our elders, is going to be preaching uh, before, for us this morning. Uh, and we are, if, you are, if you've been traveling with us online, we are in a series called The Good Life. We're exploring the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments that God give to, gave to His ancient people, Israel, uh, many, many years ago. And we're thinking about what they mean in that context, what they mean for us today. And so if you have a Bible in front of you um, or on your phone, can I encourage you to turn it up uh, to Exodus chapter 20 uh, and also um, keep a finger, turn up Mark chapter 10 as well. Um, The reading in Exodus 20 is, to be honest, quite brief. Um, And then uh, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 10. Um, So um, I'll give you a moment. Exodus 20, Mark chapter 10. Are you ready? Exodus 20 and verse 13. Blink and you'll miss it. But it's really important. The Word of God, uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 says, You shall not murder. Here ends the reading. There you go. Um, Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. You shall not murder. And we'll go to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17 through to verse 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this time, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to encourage Simon to come up the front. Come on down. Come up, yeah, why not? (laughs) 
This is, uh, this, is, this is not practiced or rehearsed, but I was just okay. going to ask you a few questions. Um, okay. So you're, you're Simon Danucci. I am. And you're married to Liz Danucci, who is sitting there waving her hand. Um, how long have you guys been around at City Light, North Adelaide for? Uh, what is it, a couple of years? I don't know. <laughs> it's it must so be something amazing. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been so memorable. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. What do, you, uh, what, do you, what do you do, mate, when you're, when you're not about to preach, when you're not at church? What do you do? Um, my day job is I'm a, a safety engineer and consultant. So um, I work for a firm that helps people um, prove that their stuff is safe to use. Yeah. Yeah. It's an exciting job. It has its moments. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you walk into a place like this and sort of examine how safe it is and sort of feel <laughs> terrified? I don't, I don't really do buildings. Okay, that's right. a yeah. civil that's engineering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And how did you become a Christian? What is, what's your story there? Oh, uh, well, the short short version is, um, you know, Gideon's Bible at school. Um, went to university. Um, friend of mine ran the youth group at a church, so I went along and uh, just got started. You know, the preacher said all this stuff, and I thought wow, he's talking to me. How does he know all this stuff about me? Um, so, yeah, it was... Uh, and, yeah, it just went on from there. And that's where I met Liz so, as well. So God had everything planned out. That's good. That's good. And you guys are not from... We're well, not originally from Australia. Tell us a bit about, like, yeah, how did you come from where you've come from and end up here? <laughs> so we're from the UK, as you can probably tell, and we came here in 2012. Um, and we'd... Uh, I'd done 20 years in the Air Force, but we'd never had a tour overseas, although we got close a couple of times. And we'd always wondered about doing something else, uh, thinking, you know, we were living in a little house on a housing estate in, in Bristol, in the UK, and thinking, is this it for the rest of our lives? And um, then, sadly, Liz's mum and my dad died within three months of each other. So that was kind of a wake-up call you've got to get on with stuff. So um, we started thinking about coming to Australia. And then one evening we went to church because Liz was playing. And uh, so we, we prayed about it before the service. And then when the person came up to read the scripture, it was Genesis, I think it's chapter 12, verse 1, where God says to Abraham, you know, do not be afraid. I want you to leave the land of your father and go to the place that I am showing you. And, uh, yeah, so that was that, really. Yes, which is ironic, because my father is Italian, so the land of my father is not the UK, you know. So. Anyway. Well, we're, um, we're excited to hear you preach today, brother. Thank um, you. And uh, over to you. Thanks very much. Cheers. Well, morning, everyone. I'm Simon. You, well, as you know now... I'm one of the elders at, uh, at City Life North Adelaide. Um, you don't have to be called Simon to be in the leadership team, but cl <laughs> clearly it helps. Uh, and I, it's, it's wonderful to be here. It's, uh, we, you know, we'd hoped we'd be able to find somewhere where we could worship together in the morning. So it's a fantastic privilege to preach God's word anywhere and any time. But it's, it's great to be here today. So please do keep your Bibles at Mark 10. We will, we will get there. I've got a few things to say before we look at the Scripture. 
And so today, we're talking about murder, which shouldn't really need any further explanation, should it? It should be a very short sermon. Uh, Murder is wrong, and that's all there is to it. And as you've just heard, the command has only four words, you shall not murder, in the NIV version. Now, some of the other commands, about commands about idols or the Sabbath, they have several verses explaining what the command is and why you should keep it. But this one needs no explanation, does it? You shall not murder. And so I was wondering, what am I going to say about this? And then I remembered I'd read an article in an online magazine called The Gospel Coalition. There seems to be a lot of good stuff in there. And this article was by an African-American theologian called Carl Ellis. And so, in the article, he said that um, biblical righteousness is like a four-pane window. There we go. And he says, righteousness has four dimensions, or biblical righteousness. So first of all, we've got piety. We've got doing what is right according to God in the sort of narrow sense of devotion and ceremony. And he quotes 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 2, live in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then we've got justice, Uh, doing what is right towards, uh, Ellis says, our fellow image bearers. We're all made in the image of God, so we have to do right to our fellow image bearers and do what is right before God. And he gives us an example, religion that that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So that's James uh, chapter 1, verse 27, James, Jesus' brother. So that's piety and justice. And then on the other dimension, as I'm an engineer, I love diagrams and tables. (laughs) I love that stuff. So we've got the, the personal aspect. So we've got to live before God rightly as an individual. We'll do our best. It says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, dedicated to God and pleasing to him, it says in the first chapter of Romans 12. And then there's the social aspect. We need to live rightly before God as a community. So here we are, but as a wider community as well. But Carl Ellis is talking about the body of Christ. And in Galatians 6.2, Paul reminds us to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So we've got all four of those aspects. So that's the window of righteousness. Okay. And we can think of it, as we said, as a four-paned window, an illustration, a picture of how the gospel plays out in individual lives and society. But then we've got the the opposite version. So when it all goes wrong, we have uh, impiety and oppression, both personal and social. 
And Ellis asks why some American evangelical churches seem to focus on personal impiety only when a person sins and suffers for his, uh, his or her own consequences. So that focus on, I guess it's, it's natural for church to focus on individual salvation. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's more to it than that, isn't there, if we look at this? And he questions, well, why don't some churches talk about oppression when a personal sins and forces other to, others to suffer the consequence of their sin, or when he or she imposes their sin on somebody else? And why don't they talk about institutional unrighteousness, sin that is woven into the structure and social fabric of society? It's sin that doesn't need the intention or the consciousness of the sinner to have effects on its victims. And that really struck me. I don't suppose there are many of us here who have knowingly killed somebody, okay? I've met a couple of, of killers over the years. Um, they're not that different, to be honest, which is quite worrying. Um, I used to cycle to work in Adelaide. I've almost been knocked off my bike by a few Adelaidean drivers who didn't even see me. So, you know, it's always possible that we've hurt somebody without realizing but that really struck me, sin that doesn't need the intention or the consciousness of the sinner to have effects on its victims. So we may not realize we're even doing wrong. So there's an example of this that I feel that I just have to address, even though it's painful and controversial. And I do ask you to bear with me, because on this subject, um, it seems you can't say anything without being criticized. And I'm talking about the Black Lives Matter campaign, which was um, tragically reinvigorated recently um, uh, by the horrific killing, murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. And uh, so we know from watching the news that this has caused, uh, you know, huge protests across the world, and rightly so. And we've had protests here in Australia. And when we watch the news, what we are told, what we hear, is about deaths of Aboriginal people, of Indigenous people in custody. And we're told that uh, 432 Aboriginal people have died in custody since the 1990s. That's the one statistic that we hear about. However, if we look at the bigger picture, we find that also many more non-Indigenous people died in custody. And we also find, and this surprised me, that the average age at death for, our, for Aboriginal people is the same, whether they die in custody or not. Now, having said that, there's two sides to every story. We know that indigenous people are much poorer than other Aussies, and we also know that Aboriginal people have a much shorter life expectancy in this country. Uh, I quote, almost half of Aboriginal men and over a third of women die before they turn 45. At all ages, Aboriginal life expectancy is lower 
than for non-Aboriginal Australians. And I think that 45 age is significant because for thousands of years, that was your life expectancy for pretty much everybody across the world. So, uh, and it didn't start to improve in Europe until the sort of pre or just coming into the industrial age. So our life expectancies have gone up enormously, but not for Aboriginal people. On average, they die eight years younger than other Australians. And friends, it doesn't have to be this way. If we look across the ditch to New Zealand, we see that indigenous Kiwis live the same length of life of other Kiwis. And if we look in the USA, uh, First Nations people actually live slightly longer than other Americans on average. Now, we are all very rich countries. So what are we doing so wrong in Australia? So you might be wondering, why am I banging on about statistics in the middle of a Christian message? How does that pass the spiritual so what test? Well, first of all, there's a thing about truth. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And again and again in the Gospels, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Even the Son of God himself does not say, we have to listen to him and believe him because he's the Son of God. He does the opposite. He says, trust him because he's telling the truth. So truth should be important to us as his disciples. And secondly, James, James Jesus' own brother, reminds us that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And that's from James chapter 1, verse 20. So when uh, a pressure group or somebody on social media quotes a shocking statistic at us in isolation, they are deliberately trying to cause outrage. They're trying to arouse our emotions so that they can manipulate us into supporting them. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that... Uh, you know, there are good causes out there, and there are shocking things. You know, um, we're supporters of Amnesty International and the Barnabas Fund who, who uh, help persecuted Christians. There's a lot of good causes out there, and they, they you know, they highlight the, the people that they're trying to help. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we see things in isolation on social media, we need to be discerning. We need to maybe look into it a bit more and check out who's saying what and make sure that we, we don't unwittingly give support to something um, that turns out to be false news or whatever. And even more significantly, um, it's very easy for us as human beings to look for someone to blame. Um, I know from my day job that as soon as you start looking for blame, you're not going to fix the problem. You can do one or the other. You can fix blame or you can fix the problem. Uh, you know, in, nobody who investigates accidents for a living does blame because they know it distorts the investigation. And we might feel good wallowing in our outrage 
but it's self-indulgence. And I think it's particularly dangerous because once we start blaming others, then basically we throw off any responsibility on ourselves to actually take responsibility for what's happened and do something about it. Blaming others, there's no sacrifice in doing that, is there? We don't have to give up anything to blame others. So, I promised you that we would come back to Mark 10. So let's see how Jesus dealt with this subject. So as we've heard in the beginning, Jesus is approached by a rich young man and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. And it would have been obvious that the young man was rich. He would have been dressed better. He would have been healthier. He would have been cleaner. Um, so everybody would be able to see that he was, he was wealthier than, than most people around him. And Jesus starts to answer by quoting the commandments. First of all, do not murder. And the young man says, well, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. And in verse 21, we're told that Jesus looked at him and loved him. So what Jesus says is not out of anger or outrage, it's in love. And then Jesus does something extraordinary. One thing you lack, Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So why does Jesus say this confronting thing? Well, elsewhere, Jesus does this to shock the religious out of their comfortable complacency. So he turns up and says tough things to people in order to get them to wake up and listen and not to assume that they're sorted just because they belong, just because they're circumcised. I've got some, some outward show of religion. But also I think Jesus is saying to the rich man, you have so much that your personal piety is not enough. God requires more from you. And Jesus concludes in verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked by this because most likely they've been brought up to believe that, well, if you're wealthy and successful, that must be a sign of God's blessing, mustn't it? We must have done well because God has blessed us. And so they say, well, if even people who God has apparently blessed, who seemingly God is pleased with, if even these people can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus reassures his disciples that those who have made sacrifices to follow him, as um, Peter says, we've given up everything to follow you, Lord. But Jesus says those who have made sacrifices to follow him will receive a reward much greater than anything they could have enjoyed on earth. Then Jesus goes on to say these final words, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So what does this mean? I think Jesus is referring to hierarchies. Um, so we observe a pecking order in chickens. I think we have 
There we go. There's some Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John chicken. So we observe this pecking order in chickens and in other animals. But of course, we humans do it too, don't we? We establish who is top dog or whatever you want to call it. And then there's a, a pecking order or a, a barking or biting order, whatever it is, all the way down to the bottom. And we do this too, don't we, as humans? Now, in the animal kingdom, the pecking order has a good purpose. It stops endless competition and fighting between the chickens, which wastes energy, and it reduces their chances of survival. And once every chicken knows their place, where it belongs in the hierarchy, it no longer has to fight for position. Life goes on for each chicken and for the whole flock. Now, I remember reading when somebody pointed out that Jesus does not say that he's going to do away with this hierarchy. He doesn't say he's going to get rid of the pecking order in the kingdom, which I found quite shocking. It's a bit like Jesus saying, the poor will always be with you. So that's not going to go away. But he does say that he's going to turn that pecking order upside down, and those who are on top will find themselves coming last, and those who are poor and powerless and downtrodden will come first. Now, friends, I suspect, I, 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 I'm not a statistician, I can't even say it, as you just noticed, the, I suspect that the real reason that too many Aboriginal people are dying in custody is that there are too many in custody in the first place. Now, I don't mean that domestic violence and threats to kill should go unpunished, but I suspect that being poor and downtrodden makes such behavior more likely. And conversely, I don't see many rich criminals in prison. Um, I know that several large corporations in Australia have made hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue for years, but have paid no tax whatsoever. So are the company directors, are the lawyers, are the accountants who make this happen, are they in prison alongside our Aboriginal brothers and sisters? I don't think they are, do you? Rich, successful thieves don't go to prison. And so in conclusion, our society can think itself righteous because we are rich and successful, because we are outwardly respectable, and we appear, at least, to obey the law, whatever's going on inside our heads. We have great power and fabulous technology. We live a long time. We are outwardly religious, and we inherited a Western system of science and technology and culture that seemingly has conquered the world. But I have to tell you that I have no confidence in the flesh, in this outward show of religion or strength. I have no confidence in our strength to deliver piety or justice, whether personal or social, because the evidence is that it just doesn't happen. And I have no confidence in our human pecking order to deliver justice for the poor, but I do believe that Jesus will deliver justice for everyone. 
I also believe that copying Jesus will advance the kingdom. We might have to speak truth that others don't want to hear, which will not make us popular. We might have to sacrifice our wealth to love others with charity. We might have to lower ourselves in the pecking order in society in order to raise others up. Friends, the good news is that we, we followers of Christ, are not going to get what we deserve because Jesus will save us from our false outward piety. He'll save us from our riches and our distorted justice. Everyone who accepts Jesus as Lord will be accepted and included, even though our righteousness is patchy at best. So come, Lord Jesus, and please use us to bring righteousness, true biblical righteousness, to our world. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.